And so, Father, having sung that, we pray for ourselves, as Paul did, that we would be able to understand that which is beyond understanding, the depth and the length and the height of the unfathomable God and his great love for us. Father, we praise you for this study. Thank you for John 3.16. Thank you for where it has taken us in our questions about you and the answers that your word gives. Lord, your love is, yes, boundless and free, but it surpasses all of our understanding. Even our best theology is but a thimbleful of knowledge of the glorious depths and breadth of your great love. And so, Father, we have to pray. We, we find ourselves needing to pray that you would help us to understand it because it is not easy, but it is so wonderful. And so we praise you for it. Give us ears to hear now. Give us truth to protect us from error and fill us with a heart of worship so that Jesus Christ will be praised in us for your great glory and for our own great joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 3 is where we are today, as we have been for a little while. And last time we looked at John 3.16, and we came across the important phrase that while being so well-known and really so simply stated, has been no small controversial passage And namely, the phrase that is at issue is this, that God loved the world. So many trees have lost their lives over what that means. And last week, after much study and much exegesis and presentation to you last Sunday morning, our conclusion was that what John, or what Jesus meant when he said what John wrote is exactly what it appears to be, that God loves the human race, which includes Jews and Gentiles and believers and unbelievers and the wicked and the righteous and the unrighteous and every other category of person you can put in there. God loves them all. My, oh, my, that raises questions, doesn't it? If you have any theological thinking about you that raises questions. And so, rather than continue in John 3.16, I want to fulfill my promise. Last week, I said, you know, pretty soon here, we're going to need to just take a sermon and help us get our arms wrapped all the way around this as best we can, humanly speaking, and within less than an hour. How do you do that? How do we get our arms around this incredible, incredible thing called the love of God? And so now that we've waded into the deep and rich truths found in John 3.16, I think it's safe to say that we have all come to realize that the love of God is a complex and multifaceted thing like the most precious diamond and the biggest you have ever seen. And because of that, it is perfectly legitimate to ask questions like this. Precisely how does one integrate what the Bible teaches about the love of God with what the Bible teaches about the sovereignty of God? How do those two fit together? And that's a really good question. 
And to answer it, I'd like to offer, I'd like to offer you five different ways that the Bible speaks of the love of God. Now, there's a lot of different ways to come at this, but I just think the simplest way I can do this is to give you what I've learned, and that is, this is not the five points of anybody. This is five things that the Word of God says about the love of God. Five manifestations, if you will, of the love of God in Scripture. And I want to give that to you, but before we do, let's stand and just read this text. Um, because I, I just want God to speak. And then if I were to happen to drop dead after that, uh, you will have heard from him. And so John 3, starting with verse 16, and we'll read through verse 19, which will actually be my text for next week. I, I intended to preach these verses this week, but when I got fully into this, I got to the end of it. I was polishing it up last night, and I looked at my page number, and I realized I had written a small book and couldn't possibly present that. And so we'll read this text and then get to our five points. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe in him has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now that's... That's an awful lot of material. It just seemed like a few verses. One of the paradoxes of John is his simple language is deceivingly simple because what he means by what he says is so incredibly deep. And so without any more ado, let me give you the five things. And I just want to say by way of full disclosure that D.A. Carson has been such a help with this, with my understanding of the love of God, the complexities of the love of God. And so do credit to D.A. Carson. Number one, the particular love, if you're writing, if you're taking notes, there are going to be five of these. Here is number one, and you can simplify them as, as you want. I try to keep them as simple as I can, but we have to be specific as well. So number one, the peculiar love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father. We're talking about five ways God manifests his love in Scripture. And way number one is the peculiar love that the Father has for the Son and the Son has for the Father. And this, is, this, this kind of love stands out as one of the rich themes in the Gospel of John. For example, you are right now looking at John chapter 3, right? That's open on your lap, your Bible, to John chapter 3, I trust. Look at verse 25 and watch this. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Look at chapter 5, verse 20. For the Father loves the Son. I love this passage. 
and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the Father will show him greater works than these, and here's why, so that you will marvel. Love that. But this love is reciprocal. It's not just from father to son. It's from son to father. John 14, 31, Jesus says, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. And so here we have it. Here is this, this essential seed of the existence of love. Where does love comes from? Love comes from God. For God is love. If there is any love in the world, it is because God exists and God is love. So the first kind of love that the Father demonstrates in Scripture is the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father. Theologians call this the intra-Trinitarian view of the love of God. This is the intra, the internal Trinitarian love of God. It is that love that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit have enjoyed for all of eternity past, long before they ever created man, long before he ever created man. And he didn't create man because he was lonely. If he'd been lonely, he would have come up with that conclusion long before he did. But he didn't. He created man to take his glory and make it public so that others could joy, enjoy all that he is. But he was not lonely, and he was not needy. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enjoyed perfect fellowship and perfect love for all eternity past. Now, it's important to note here that this is one of the major ways in which Christianity differs from all of the other monotheistic religions of the world. That our God is not only a Trinitarian God, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but that their relationship was this. They are people in community for eternity. Or they are, not people, but persons in community for eternity. With no conflict, no friction between them, they lived in absolute perfection, absolute love to one another. They gave and they gave and they gave. And think of this, there would be no such thing as love if it weren't for the reality that there was at least two persons, two persons, and yet there are three. It just makes the dynamics of his love. You begin going down that, that train of thought, and you're going you're gonna to have to set aside the rest of your Sunday just to be alone with God. And so the three members of the Trinity, of the Godhead, have lived in perfect love forever. So that's the first kind of love that we discover in the Bible. The peculiar love of father to son and son to father. The second kind is this. Number two, God's providential love for all that he has made. Or you could say God's providential love for creation. Now, when you're looking at this in the Bible, we don't normally see in Scripture the use of the word love relative to God speaking of his creation. Nevertheless, if you have eyes to see, you will see it, and most clearly. The theme of love is easy to spot. For instance, just all the way back into um, Genesis chapter 1, where God created the heavens and the earth. 
And before there was any hint of the slightest sin in the world, God looked at what he had created, his fresh creation, and he said, what? It is good. And then when he created man, he looked at them and he said, now that's very good. Who was he talking to? Himself. The three persons were talking to each other. They were high-fiving. They were saying, wow, do we, good, do we do good work or what? I mean, that's awesome. That is great. That is magnificent. I mean, that's not, that's not arrogance. That's not pride. That's just truth. They delighted. He delighted in what he made, which is just another way of saying he loved it. Now, this kind of gets filtered down to us because we respond to this kind of love, or at least we should, and we should teach our children to respond to it. Like God responds to the glory of his creation, he loves it, and we should too. And so when we look at the beautiful um, hill country in central Texas or the sprawling prairies of north Texas, especially um, the verdant fields of, of Texas prairie we see in the springtime. It's about the only time we see it, right? Beauty. We the rich green forest of East Texas, or we see the rich blue seas, the deep waters in South Texas, or we look out west and we see the deserts of West Texas. I don't, I'm not trying to imply that Texas is the totality of God's creation. <laughs> And so else, where, where else do we look? Well, then we look to the heavens, the only other thing I could think of, the stars in the heavens, the sun and the moon, and we see the glory of God's creation there. And whenever we see the beauties of God's creation, we should remember that all of it was the product, the fruit, the handiwork of a loving God. And consider this. You remember Jesus when he was dealing with anxiety, remember? Very, very pastoral. Where does Jesus go when he's dealing with anxiety? Somebody needs to write a book on this. Because what he does is he turns to creation. And Jesus says, listen, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. And God adorns them greater with more beauty than Solomon in all of his robes are not as glorious and beautiful as the lilies of the field and the wildflowers, probably thinking of blue bonnets. And Jesus takes that and he uses it as an analogy of God's love for you. He says, if God so clothes the grass of the fields and the lilies with such beauty and with such care, and if he knows every sparrow that falls to the ground and every number of the hair on your heads, do you not think that he cares for you? Oh, you of little faith. So what's the parallel? You want to know how much God really loves you? You want to get in touch with that to deal with your anxiety? Then consider this. Look at creation. God loves the creation but he loves you more. That's good counsel. That's good counsel. And consider this as well. 
Once in a while, if you read uh, anything from Answers in Genesis or maybe even National Geographic or any of that stuff, you'll find that once in a while, mankind will discover at the deepest depths of the sea a fish or some squid or some organism that nobody's ever seen before. And they come up with pictures and they go, wow, nobody's ever seen this fish or this creature before. And if you're a believer, you might think to yourself, well, that's strange. Here we are, maybe 10,000 years after God created the world, um, 10,000 years, and man has never seen that creature. Why would God create a creature if we could never see it to glory in? Here's the answer. Maybe God didn't create it for you. <laughs> maybe he just said, you know, it really delight my heart, a fish that looks like this, bam, oh. Isn't that beautiful? Sun, spirit. And they're saying, wow, that's marvelous. Watch this. Boom. There's another one. In the Psalms, it talks about the Lord walking in the floor of the deepest depths of the sea. I think he does that with a big smile on his face. All of this I have created for me. He loves his creation. Matthew 6 tells us that not even a sparrow can fall from the sky without the full knowledge of God. He cares for the animals. The Old Testament says he feeds them. He gives them what they need. If he didn't care about them, then Jesus' analogy doesn't apply to us. But it does. And so we've seen the reciprocal love between father and son. We've seen God's providential love for his creation. Number three, Here is God's universal, yearning, and commanding love for the fallen world of sinners. Or you could say this, just God's love for a world of sinners. But I want to put in there, universal, yearning, and commanding as well, because it all applies. And this is where John 3.16 fits in. We're trying to understand, okay, If God loves the world, how do I understand that in relationship to the rest of Scripture? This is how we understand it. This is speaking of God's universal, yearning, commanding love to the fallen world. And here's what we read. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. D.A. Carson explains that the term world here is not designated to show bigness, but badness. In other words, in John 3.16, we are called to admire the love of God, not because it is extended to so big a thing as the world, but so bad a thing Not to so many people, but to such wicked people. That's the emphasis here. Look at the amazing, incomprehensible love of God. It extends as far as humanity. All of it. And if you struggle with that, and I know some of you who are theologically minded and have been taught differently on this, I would challenge you to wrestle with it and come back next week 
because we're going to look at some more context in, first, I mean, in John chapter 3, which I think is, is the slam dunk on this. But consider this. Do you love your wife? God loves a world of sinners infinitely more than you love your wife. And you know why? Because his love is an infinitely holy love. It is an infinitely pure and perfect love. It is nothing that you've ever even experienced in your life. And yet that is not even the fullest manifestation of his love. But this is one of the loves of God. We saw last week, both in Old Testament and in New Testament, this kind of love is demonstrated throughout Scripture. And I would encourage you, if you were here last week, pick up, get on, get on Sermon Audio or on our website or on the app or wherever you can find it, but there's plenty of places to find that message and just get caught up because if you're going to be here next week, you're going to need that background. Here's God's message to the world. That however much God stands in judgment over the world... He also presents himself as the God who invites and commands all human beings to repent and find in in Christ eternal life. Moreover, he commands his people to carry the gospel to the furthest corners of the world. Why? Because God loves And to this God-rejecting world of rebels, God calls out with yearnings and pleadings that sound something like this. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their wicked ways and live. So turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? It makes no sense for you to just go over Niagara Falls into the eternal judgment of God when the gospel is offered to you again and again and again. Stop rejecting it for your own good. It will not please me for you to spend eternity in hell. And implicitly here, for those who know me, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all creation teaching them to obey everything that the Son has taught you. This is where the gospel fits in. It's where missions fits in. It's where evangelism fits in. But even bigger than that, we should look at that and say, oh my word, the love of God is far more complex and fantastically bigger than I thought it was. And so there is a reciprocal love between the Father and Son. There is God's providential love for his creation. Third, there is God's universal love for a fallen world. And fourth, number four, God's particular love for his elect. For his elect. Now in the Old Testament, we see God's electing love in the nation of Israel. Right? And I know at this point, this is, this is manifestation of love. Number four, this is where controversy kind of kicks in. And yet, when we think about the Old Testament, 
I don't know of anybody from any theological persuasion who thinks that God didn't single out Israel as his own possession and called them specifically and separately from the rest of the world. He didn't call any other nation of the world. He didn't call any other people. He repeats that again and again and again in the Old Testament. These are my chosen people. I chose them. They are my elect. Nobody has any problem with that. Then we get to the New Testament, and we see that God has chosen a people, his church, made up of of the true children of God. And we start getting a little bit uncomfortable with that, but then we get really uncomfortable when we see passages or we hear people talk about God electing individuals because that sounds unfair. Um, And there's someone in the back who agrees with that. (laughs) But let me point out again that this is not altogether unlike our love for people. Your love for people is complex. And you love other people differently. You love different people differently. Let me give you an example of that. When I think of the elders, each of them, each of them um, have married women who I admire, and I consider them godly women, and wonderful people. And there is a sense in which I love every one of them. But there is one woman on this planet that I chose for myself. Anybody have an issue with that? I chose her for myself. I said at one point back there in Chattanooga, Tennessee, on Lookout Mountain, when I proposed to her, what I was saying was, You alone and no one else. I've looked over the span of this world as far as I can see, which is pretty limited. But every other woman I've ever met and I've ever known, doesn't matter who they are or what they have to offer, I reject them all. And I choose you. And will you be mine for the rest of your life? Okay, so don't get me going there because we'll spend the rest of the morning. Um... In a very real sense, she is my elect. I chose her for me. And she could say the same thing. By the way, the same can be said of my children. Make no mistake, I love your children. I do. I love all the children at Calvary Bible Church. I do. But frankly, I don't love any child as much as I love the Kirk family's Magnificent Seven. (laughs) I mean, I love your kids. They're great kids. I'm sure they're great kids. Um, But my relationship with your kids is quite different than my relationship with my kids. I love your kids. I love my kids more. And here's what I tell my kids. I love you but I love your mother more. And there's great security in that. We love different people differently. And, and by the way, there's no better picture of this when it comes to children of God's particular electing love than 
the, the image that we see in, among you families who have adopted children from other countries, other races, or just other families. There is no better picture of the gospel than that. No better representation of what God did for us. It wasn't because we had something to contribute to him that he was lacking. It wasn't because we would make his life better. It couldn't get any better than living in perfect harmony with other people who are infinitely perfect. But God chose us, just like you who have adopted, chose this son or this daughter and brought them into your home. The only thing they had to offer was their deficiencies, their inability, and yet you moved into their world and you did something for that child that they could have never done for themselves, nor could they recommend themselves to you in any other way. You just did it. Why? Because you love. You love. And in that sense, you are like God. And in that transaction of adoption, you represent the gospel and you represent God better than, I think, any other picture in all of the world. It's beautiful. And we'll see that again here in a few minutes. So we read in scriptures that God says to Israel, for example, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than the other people, for you were the fewest people of all. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers that the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It was out of this Deep well in the heart of God, this infinitely deep well of love that God chose to take a needy people who could contribute nothing essential to him and give them what they needed, a Savior, through Moses, and then another Savior in Christ. Likewise, in the New Testament, we read, We read passages like this, and I want you to turn there, Ephesians 1. You need something to just pray through and meditate on today, something that will encourage you as it's it's kind of blowing your circuits to. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Here's Paul blessing God. It's very, it's kind of the language that we see in the Psalms. Bless the Lord, O my soul, right? Well, here is Paul picking up that kind of language, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him, when? From before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Watch this. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. This is just a sampling of God's electing love. This is just a thumbnail, a a, a thimbleful, of God's magnificent and infinite electing love. Striking thing about all of this in each of these passages, whether it's the ones in Deuteronomy or the one here in Ephesians or the one in Romans 8 or 
You can go anywhere where you see God's electing love. The striking thing about these passages is that when God sets his electing love upon someone, the distinguishing feature has nothing to do with the personal or national merit. It is nothing other than the expression of the love of God. It is because God is love that he saves This kind of love is really different than the other three kinds. It's in, this, in the context of this particular electing love that God says in this, in this electing love. We, here's where we get these, these two categories where God says really kind of hard statements that make us quiver or at least make us jump to the next verses hoping we won't have to spend much time thinking about this. But it's where God says things like this. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He says it once in Malachi 1, 2, and 3, and he says it again in Romans chapter 9. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. What do you do with that? And this is where much of the controversy comes into the church, because in this sense, we are not like God. We can't say that. When we hate, our hate is maybe never a holy hatred, or at least very, very rarely. Although we find in Psalm 139, David saying, do I not hate those who hate thee? And so maybe it's possible for us to have a holy hatred as God does, but so rare. It's apparent that passing over certain sinners, um, as apparent as that is, it disturbs us to think that that God chooses some and passes over others. We don't like that. We don't know what to make of that. And at the end of the day, after trying to explain as much of this as he possibly could toward the end of the book of Romans, even the Apostle Paul had to kind of throw up his hands and say, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? And who has ever given to God that God should repay him for From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And all the people said, amen. But I kind of fixated this week on that phrase, who has become his counselor? Because I think what I hear there is echoes of Job. More specifically, echoes of God's statement to Job that Paul doesn't want to hear. When Job starts questioning the integrity of God because of his suffering and what God has obviously done in his life that is so painful and hurtful, ten children, and God took them. It is Job who says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But that's That's Job at his best in that circumstance. There are other times in the book of Job when he's really hurting and he's saying some things that the Lord doesn't like. And finally at the end of the book, God comes and says, who dares to darken my counsel without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you, you who are so wise. You who know how justice ought to function in the cosmos. Let's see if you're up to it. I'll ask you some questions, and you give me your best answers. 
Number one, where do I store lightning? Is that a trick question? (laughs) From whence comes the hail? You who are so wise, tell me. And here's Paul. He's trying to explain these mysteries of God. And he finally goes, and I don't want want to get too close to crossing any lines here. Let's just admit. Let's just say together, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Not me. Not me. And who has ever given to him that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. That's magnificent. And so when we think about God's electing love, we just have to kind of sit back in our chair and push aside our theology books and just say, glory. Glory. And so we've considered God's reciprocal love between father and son, God's providential love for his creation, God's universal love, his his yearning, longing love for a fallen, sinful world, God's particular love for his elect. And finally, number five, God's provisional or conditional love for his people. You say, what is that? You need to know this. God's provisional or conditional love for his elect people. This kind of love has nothing to do with how sinners become children of God. Nothing at all. If you're not a child of God, this doesn't apply to you. Nor does it apply to how you become a child of God. It does, however, have much to do with our relationship with God once we are truly, in Jesus' words, born again, or born of the Spirit, or born of water and the Spirit. However you want to say it, it's all the same thing. It has to do with that miracle in the heart that God does when God removes the heart of stone, replaces it with the heart of flesh, or in Jesus' terms, the wind comes and blows. You don't see it coming. You, don't, you, you, just, you just know it has these effects that you kind of see the effects, but that's all. You can't control it. You can't do anything with it except receive it. And that's what being born in the Spirit is like. Everyone who is born in the Spirit gets born in the Spirit like that. It's like being born the first time. So if you were born again, this is the kind of love that you have with the Father right now. This is the kind of love that we are responsible for to, watch this, to pursue and to maintain. A love of God that we are to pursue and maintain. Now, one of my favorite passages that I, that I typically use at the end of a service is from the book of Jude. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But one of the verses immediately before that, which I, I, I hardly ever mention, is this. You can look at, at the book of Jude. I'll come back to it in a little bit. Um, it's only one chapter. But chapter 1, there's only one chapter. Okay, so verse 21 of Jude says this. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love. And scholars debate whether it's 
love of God as in your love for him or his love for you. It's probably his love for you as experienced and perhaps reciprocal in your love for him. But I think, I think that the lion's weight on this, the lion's share of this, has more to do with God's love for you relative to your experience of it. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves. Now, this is a, this is a, a profound passage. We need to think about this, but let me, let me just divert us away from it for just a second and look a couple of verses down. This is the part that I read and will read at the end of this service. Here's the command. Keep yourself in the love of God. But watch this, verse 24. Here's his benediction of worship. Now unto him who is able to keep you. Isn't that great? There's always this in the Bible. There's always this already and not yet. There's always man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. There's all of those dynamics. There's both and. You can't separate them out, and that's part of the point of this message, is you dare not overemphasize any one. You dare not neglect any of them. But here we have God saying, keep yourself in the love of God, knowing that I will keep you. So here's what I think he's saying. He's saying two entirely different things that help one another. Number one, he's saying, it is your responsibility to keep you, keep yourself in such a vital relationship that you are daily receiving and experiencing God's love. But don't ever forget that your ultimate relationship with me has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. I will keep you. You say, well, that confuses me. Well, it won't in just a minute, because here's how it works. What is he speaking about in verse 21? Keep yourself in the love of God. If he's not saying the same thing, speaking of the same kind of love in verse 24. The difference is, I think, what he's saying in verse 24 has to do with your salvation and your security. Which once you were a child of God, think about it like this, humanly speaking, whether it's by birth or adoption, Once you were born into that family, once you were adopted into that family, you can never let it go. That'll always be your mom and dad. You always have those siblings. Legally, judicially, you are secure, no matter what happens. It's the same thing here. But there's another dynamic here. There's another dynamic. So let's think about this. You know, for the most part, Our relationship with one another, no matter how you look at it, any aspect of our relationship with one another is merely a dim reflection of God's relationship, first of all, with himself, the other persons of the Trinity, and secondarily, God's relationship with us. And so we see shadows of this in our relationships. And one of the relational dynamics here is a relationship between a human father and his child. Now, let's play the tape back again. You're born into the Kirk family. How many of you were born into the Kirk family? Yes, I see those hands. You can come forward. <laughs> okay. Uh, so you're born into the Kirk family. Guess what? No matter what you do, your dad's going to love you. My love for you is never going to wave you. Waver. I know. Say this been back there going. <laughs> My love for you is never going to waver. I will love you no matter what you do. 
how bad it gets. Just don't let it get too bad. But I'll love you, even if it does. And so know my covenant with you. I'll never stop loving you. But here's the thing. It's not always going to feel like I love you. And it hasn't always felt like I love you. Partly because I'm a sinner, but God doesn't have that component. Partly because sometimes you disobey. I mean, have disobeyed. Not that you do that now. But that you have disobeyed in the past. And in that moment, everyone who's been in that scenario where your father has had to discipline you, all of the reciting of I love you and this hurts me more than it hurts you means nothing to the child in that moment. It doesn't feel like you love me. It feels like hate. It feels like you hate me. And dad will say, no, no, no. No, no. Don't ever think I hate you. I love you. Yes, but it feels so bad. It feels so painful. It feels like there's distance between us. Yes, it does. And there's a reason for that. And here is why. You have not kept yourself in the love of your father. Your father's love for you has never changed. But your experience of that love has momentarily changed. And so, here's what we have from the scriptures. Jesus teaching his disciples. Ready for this? John 15, verse 9. John 15, verse 9. Now, honestly, just as you're turning there, you're giving me a minute to kind of throw in a parenthesis. Honestly, this is an aspect of our relationship with God that in our present age, uh, as as the evangelical church and even the, the people who are mostly, most closely associated with us, this is an aspect of our relationship with God that has suffered relative to the way it has been taught and is being taught in the church today. Because we're all about resting and feeding on Jesus. We are the elect. God has chosen us. All of our sin is borne by Christ. All of his righteousness is now ours. We don't have to have any guilt. We don't have to have any sense that God is displeased with us or whatever. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. But there is an aspect of the love of God that we, we dare not neglect. Keep yourself in the love of God. I think... The corollary to this is John 15, 9. Jesus says to his disciples, if you obey my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commandments and remain in his love. What's he saying? He's saying, you want to know why my relationship with the Father never wavers? And I never feel out of fellowship with my father. It's because I keep his commandments every moment, every second of every day. And you can enjoy the love of your father as well if you obey my commandments. You will remain in my love. 
It will be like a never-ceasing stream of the water of life. It will, as Jesus said in John 4 to the woman at the well, it will be like a spring welling up from within you, this love of the Father. But that experiential love of the Father is closely connected to your obedience to the Father. You know, of of the times that I've said that this morning, I, I haven't gotten an amen on either. And I think there's a reason for that. We like statements like this. God loves unconditionally. There's a sense in which that is true. And here in the father-son, father-daughter sense, that is absolutely true. It doesn't mean you're always going to experience that. It doesn't always mean you're going to have an awareness, a joyful awareness of that. But you can, and part of how you can, is live in obedience to what God has said. We have responsibility here. And so it's work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's both. I mean, just look at our passage here in Jude. Verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves In the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them from the fire. And on on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. And remember this, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. That's who you're serving. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have responsibility in this. You want to know the love of God? You want to fulfill Paul's prayer that you would know the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of the love of God which surpasses knowledge? Obedience is a big part of that. Obedience is a big part of that. And so these are the five kinds of love that we find in the Bible. There is God's reciprocal love between father and son. There is God's providential love for his creation. There is God's universal yearning, commanding love for the fallen world of sinners. There is God's particular love for the elect. And finally, there is God's provisional love for his children. Now, why do we need to know all this? By the way, I think this is so significant. Um, Today, I'm going to write it in the back of my Bible. I have in the back of my Bible short lists of Scripture that are under key truths that I want to have at the ready at any moment. And this is one that I think merits me putting it in the back of my Bible so that I have it at the ready to help me understand when I see something about the love of God that I that I hard time wrestling with, this will be helpful. This will be helpful. So, as we think about these different ways God loves, it's important that we see 
that there is a danger in making any of them the only way God loves, right? For example, if we say that the way the members of the Godhead love one another, that's the only way God loves, then we're going to get confused when we read the Scriptures. It's not the only way God loves. It's because God doesn't only love infinitely perfect beings. He also loves sinners. And his relationship with sinners is different than the love he has for himself. For example, there is no sense in the Word of God in which the love of the Father ever redeems the Son. The Son never committed any sin. Sin. He does not need to be redeemed. The Son is the Redeemer. And so there's got to be some other kind of love. And yet there is this kind, a mutual love between Father, Son, and Spirit. Second, if we love, if, if, if the love of God is understood to be only in the sense of his providential ordering of creation, then we're in trouble. We fall off the beam a different direction. We begin treading very close to the teachings of deism, and we begin to think of God as nothing more personal than a cosmic force. He is that power that provides for his creation and makes sure global warming or the coming ice age, ice age whatever is latest, <laughs> uh, makes sure none of that kills the earth. He's sustaining us in some sense, but he's out there, he's transcendent, and he's created this world to function. Somehow his power works in that and he, he loves the planet, but, but that's the love of God. If we say that that's the totality of love for God, then we're in serious trouble. But if we neglect the reality that this is one of God's expressions of love, then we miss out on something glorious. Third, if we only think of God's love as something that's limited to inviting, yearning, and commanding sinners, if we only think of the love of God as God being a sinner seeker, then we're going to end up in all kinds of trouble. We'll end up like the Arminians or the semi-Pelagians or the full Pelagians who rob God of the glory of his sovereignty and steal, we allow that misunderstanding to steal away our security in Christ. Listen, you know what our security in Christ is based on? It's based on God's absolute sovereign power to take the propitiatory payment that, God, that Christ made on the cross and apply it definitely to sinners. If we lose that, we lose our security. We've got to have this. And, and, if, and if you reject that, you reject huge portions of the Bible. And so we've got to have this. We end up with a God, if, we, if, if that's all we see is God's yearning, sinner-seeking, here's what we end up with. We end up with a God who's kind of sitting beside the road, hat in hand, waiting, wishing, wondering, will anyone love me? Will anyone accept me? Will anyone accept the offer that I'm making, I'm laying it out before you. I'm being generous. Look, generous me. Will you take what I'm offering? It's good for you. And that doesn't mean it tastes bad. 
and it's good for you. Won't anyone please, you know, will work for whatever. Um, that's not God. That's not God. If that's God, then we're all doomed. If God never actually got up and did the work sovereignly to save, then none of us have hope. Number four, if we only think of the love of God in terms of how he loves his elect, then this is what we'll do. We'll say there are only two categories of people on the earth. There are those God loves, and there are those God hates. And the ones God loves, they get everything. And the, one God's, the ones God hate, well, they get hell. The short, miserable life, full of discipline, and then hell. Um, Beloved, that's, that's not the word of God's picture of God. That's not his picture of himself. Those whom God loves and those whom he hates, that's too narrow a paradigm to fit all of the love of God. Clearly there is an element of truth here. Clearly God has said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. But you've got to understand where that fits in the love of God. That is not the totality of it. He also loves the ones he hates. And that's what John 3.16 is all about. And he loves them so much he sent Jesus. In this manner, the Greek says, God loved the world, this world of rebellious sinners, most of whom will go to hell. He sent his son, his only one, You have to factor this in. If you don't, if you don't, if all you have is Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, you know what you get? Hyper-Calvinism. And you know what? That's error. That's error. Now, you know me well enough to know I'm pretty Calvinistic in the way I think. But that error is wrong. And Calvin himself didn't hold to it, as we'll see next week. So we've got to be careful with these things. Number five, if we only think of the love of God in terms of what we receive from him as we live in obedience, you know what will happen? If we only think, okay, God loves me when I obey, you know what that's going to do? It's going to throw me into legalism. It's going to throw us into the very thing that our current evangelical culture is, is moving too far away from in reaction to this. And there's going to be despair. And that, that is despair in, in the hearts of a lot of people. This merit-based theology that makes us live in fear that perhaps we're not good enough, not faithful enough, not obedient enough to enjoy the love of God. And, and, and true believers would never say, I think I merited eternal life. No, no. They'll say, if they're truly honest with the way that they're living, people who struggle with these things like that, they would have to admit that I trusted Jesus Christ to be the payment for my salvation, but now that I'm saved, it all depends on me and I'm not doing a very good job. And beloved, go back to the cross. The Lord Jesus died to rescue you from that fallacy. Your relationship as a believer is not dependent upon your works, but it will affect your fellowship with the Father. It will affect your fellowship with the Father. And yes, it may be that if you're living in consistent unbelief, you may be an unbeliever. But if you're a true child of God, 
then you must follow the example of Christ and his teaching to his disciples. Keep yourself in the love of God. How? By obedience. We've got to, we've got to have these categories, these biblical categories, or else we're going to run off the rail in any number of different directions. And so we've got to know it. Let's turn this around and make it positive. As we continue our study in John, I want us, when we go back to John 3.16 especially, to rejoice in the glorious complexity of this multifaceted love of God. Watch this. His intra-Trinitarian love ensures the plan of salvation. That's where it all started. Where did salvation start? Before the creation of the world, God so loved the world. That's where it began. His providential love for the world, that feeds us. This is, this is the means by which he feeds us and leads us and protects us as people. God's universal yearning love, which was supremely demonstrated, demonstrated at the cross. You know what that yearning love tells us? God cares about the lost, even the rebellious. I should care too. It opens the door for the gospel. This is the fuel for missions. We go to all of the world because God loves all the world. Number four, his electing love reveals the sheer glory and power of Christ's death to actually save sinners and reminds us that we love God because he first loved us. And it gives hope in our gospel preaching, our evangelism, in our missions, because we know that God not only loves the world, but that he is calling people out through the preaching of the word of God, through the ministry of the word and personal ministry, person to person, he's calling people out of darkness into light, and he will do it infallibly. And lastly, his provisional love, it reminds us that he is not only our sovereign God. It reminds us that he's our daddy. And his love for us will never let us go. But he will discipline us when we need it. And we will not always feel like he loves us. And that will be evidence that he loves us. Just look at Hebrews 12. And that's the point. He scourges every son he loves. This is his provisional love. If you obey my commandments, then you will remain in love, in my love. You will keep yourselves in the love of God. Oh, beloved. I don't know what this does for you, but for me, it just... I push back from this, as I did this week, sitting over in my study, and just say, God, how do I respond? glory. It's inexpressible. It is so magnificent and so deep and so wide. I agree with Paul. As much as we can know it, we can never fully understand it. The glory of God's love for people cannot be fully appreciated or understood 
without viewing all of its facets in the light of God's Word. Amen? Father, we praise you for this time. We know that we are only scratching the surface of the infinite love of God, but Lord, what a pleasure, what a joy to do so. And teach us, O Father, teach us these things. Give us a heart that has a passion to know them, to know you, and to know who we are in your sight. Encourage us, Father, and help us to live in obedience to you so that we will know and experience daily the love of God. And then, Father, even the days when we question it, remind us that your love is so infinite, so powerful, so magnificent. And it was demonstrated most of all in the death of your one and only Son, who is the sacrifice for our sin. And so we say, praise you, Father, praise you. In Jesus' name.